Hello and a very warm welcome to Sporting Lights where we showcase the story of someone who's been involved in sport with distinction in whatever way that has manifested itself in the case of my guest this week. That distinction is as a sports psychologist, a role that was rarely heard of or discussed in popular sporting culture until probably the 1980s. Uh, subsequently though, because it seems to become an essential in modern professional sporting environments, Dr. Mark Nesty is my guest. He's worked with Bolton Wanderers alongside the likes of Sam Allardyce. Currently um, is in situ helping out at Aston Villa and also with Yorkshire County Cricket Club. As I'm sure he'll tell us, many more besides during a career as both a highly respected, or as the Telegraph put it, renowned academic and practitioner. Mark, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in. And Perhaps first of all, you might want to just complete the missing parts of my attempt at your CV. Um, that's a wonderful start, Jonathan. Thank you very much for that. Um, the missing parts of the CV have to be my own personal passion and love for sport. Uh, all sports, but most particularly football. Um, despite the accent, I actually was not too bad at cricket. Uh, most of my time was in East Yorkshire as a young lad so I actually did get a chance to play that game obviously with this accent it's caused difficulties when I've been back up in Scotland but the more serious point is that I don't think that you can work in sport certainly at a professional level at elite level unless you've got some feel some empathy and I'll use that word again some real passion so that's maybe a strange thing to say if you're a traditional academic I've worked at universities for the last 25 years until this summer and I suppose I'm not really a traditional academic. So we'll come back to that later possibly. When you say you're not really a traditional academic, do you want to give us your definition of what is? I know I've set you up for that, but uh, I think it's really important in this discipline. This is meant to be uh, an applied discipline. So sports psychology for the last... 40 or 50 years has been taught within sports science degrees. There are thousands and thousands of people who have taken sports science degrees in the last 40 years or so. And the way that that's taught is as an academic discipline. That's excellent, that's as it should be. But it's meant to be applied. So the subtext is that you're really meant to do something with it. That's the students, but actually the academics themselves. And an awful lot of what's expected and always has been expected by university academics is to do research that's important but I think that what we don't do enough of and what I suppose I've done enough of which is not always considered very traditional in academic terms is go and try and apply it in industry that's been my way of keeping my vocation alive my passion alive uh, it's not been always an easy thing to do um, sometimes universities have been more supportive than others that's wonderful so I suppose that's my way of describing this. The traditional academic typically stays in university and keeps away from the real people. And you like to be there in the firing line, I guess, or alongside the players who, the practitioners of the sport who are. Is that not just an excuse to get free tickets? That's uh, typically to say something as, as low <laughs> as that. We wouldn't have been speaking for five minutes. Um, they're not so easy to get hold of sometimes, but... Uh, Know that you make a, a, an important point though about um, you know the enjoyment of actually being around the people that 
not just as a child, but all the way through my life and therefore through my professional life, I wanted to be one of these people. I make no bones about it. And there's many of us who feel that way. I, I hope it's not the only thing that defines who I am. In fact, I know it's not. But I'm not embarrassed to say that that is something that has informed my practice. And it's true, I've made my life a little bit harder than maybe a traditional academic role of, of remaining mostly in universities by actually living a university life as well as going out and working in applied settings. So you would have loved to have been a pro yourself. I think, I'm going to say loads of us lads, but loads of lads and, and lasses um, grow up now with that hankering to, you know, they follow a hero or whatever it might be. They just want to be there and get paid for something that they love. If you can't do that, then maybe such as myself get paid for doing something else that we love that's sport related. Is that the same for you then, being a sports psychologist? It's, it's, it's a great way to complete my CV. And, and maybe there's people out there saying, gosh, it's not too late for me. Um, or that's the path that I'm pursuing right now. And initially, um, the love of sport led me to consider careers in sport. And at that time, all I could see, which is now given away my age, was essentially physiotherapy or PE teaching. And I mean, I'll say this now because I've said it many times as, a, as a, an academic in lecture, so this is another entertaining place to say it. My PE teachers were not mostly inspirational figures for me. One or two, but mostly they weren't. Um, my history teacher, chemistry teachers, non-specialists were. So I decided at uh, my teens, I didn't want to be a PE teacher. So apart from being an athlete who would be paid at that level, what else could I do? So I foolishly, sensibly, did a course in business studies, which pleased my mum and my dad to some degree, kept my options very open, and ended up for my sins. There's nothing wrong with Castleford, but maybe they didn't really like me. I ended up in Castleford for a year as a transport manager at 22. And then I woke up one day and said, I wasn't too bad at sport at school and, and played county level and, and semi-professional. And it's like, this is not who I'm meant to be. So the message, if you like, for other people is, yes, some of that, I suppose, drive was kind of misdirected and allowed it to go another path. Um, but then I got my second chance and I went back to university for a second time as a mature student. And now I was absolutely sure of what I wanted to do. So I... Uh, in footballing speak, um, left absolutely nothing out on the pitch. I went fully at it. So from Glasgow to Castleford, via a degree, transport management, and then back to being a doctor of sports psychology. That's, that is a, that's a, a sort of journey that a psychologist would have a dream trying to um, get to the bottom of. Maybe one of your colleagues or fellow academics has done that. So... Sports psychologists, why why is there a need for one? In one sense, there's always been sports psychologists. We've had coaches um, who have either informally, most usually, and sometimes formally, after a bit of study, integrated psychological principles into their work. They've been around for maybe thousands of years, if I can you know, take it in such a dramatic way. Um, but in this, this way that we're describing it now is a specialist discipline. I think the opportunity to do this type of work is really um, associated with how professional sport has become, what's at stake, the 
interest, the media interest, the financial involvement, um, the margins that are there, the level of training that athletes uh, experience at the moment, and inevitably people would eventually come round to this place that if everybody more or less is technically and physically at high standard, what, what else is there that might separate the good from the very good and the excellent? So that's kind of where the psychology um, aspect is, a, a sports psychology discipline has emerged from. You're obviously going to tell me it's it's important. What about mind over matter? You know, I'm, uh, I'm of a, an age where my, my dad in particular but loved his sport, passionate about it. I'm not saying he's, he's heartless by any stretch of the imagination, but of that generation, there would be that feeling, wouldn't there, largely of mind over matter. That was the culture at the time. Mm. I mean, now we could go into really deep and controversial issues, and why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? Because this is not just about sport, um, and it's not just about psychology, because they're grounded in something, and they're grounded in a broader culture. And what is that broader culture? Well, again, these are huge you know, sweeping statements I'm going to make about uh, Western culture at the moment. But this is something I have noticed. It's not research. It's my reflections after doing applied work for a number of years, that the type of character formation, um, let's be more specific, the kinds of values that people had particularly, how, and let's use this term, mentally strong and mentally tough they were, because of the environment that they came from, which was a strange environment of lots of freedom, lots of independence, and a huge amount of structure and authority and discipline, both of those things. So I think that a generation previous to this benefited by the circumstances that they were born into. And so psychologically, some of those people, and they're typically coaches now, former performers, are extremely impressive because of what they have been, uh, I suppose, exposed to through their upbringing. Now things are much more fluid. Now there's greater difficulties. It's much harder for communities and environments to have that kind of stability and structure. And yet into that, we're asking young athletes to operate. So if I take the sports that I've worked in, um, in environments where there's huge amounts of money at stake and all the interest and pressure that comes from that. So this is a strange thing to say, but in some ways they've got to be psychologically stronger than ever before. And in another sense, through no fault of their own, they're somehow psychologically weaker. So the, I'll listen to old coaches and very old coaches sometimes saying, um, we think the modern athlete is psychologically weak. And I typically, as a psychologist, will say, I think you're right and you're wrong. Okay. Uh, a bit of, bit of fence sitting there, but uh, I know that also as an academic sets things up to see both sides of an argument and all those sorts of things that uh, academics do. So what about that argument that, that might counter it in terms of a generation of the past who was a star footballer. I don't know if I'm using the right name here in, in circumstance, but let's say of the era of a Sir Stanley Matthews or a Bobby Charlton, um, who might have had it tough when they were growing up in, in a world of rations and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, the pressure pressure in their lives of that, of where's the next meal coming from. And then they, they also 
went out onto a football pitch in front of massive crowds by comparison to some of the crowds we've got today in all standing arenas back in those days. Um, you know, the people of that generation. So you've never seen a proper football crowd, you know, apart from Wembley and because uh, there were so many there at regular league games. So what about that in terms of the pressure that was that they were dealing with? It wasn't financial, but surely walking out in front of 60,000 people at Villa Park or whatever it might have been. There's a lot of different aspects to this. and I'll, Let's try and pick a few of them off. Social media. No social media then. In terms of the global interests, if we talk about the Premier League, I know the old First Division and the English League and, and all the national leagues were you know, well attended in those days that we're talking about now. Um, but now the global interest is absolutely immense. For heaven's sake, we've even got Americans watching soccer. Um, so that doesn't directly, though, um, impact maybe on the players as much as you like. And so I'm going to say this other one. The number of times I've asked players, partly for my own interest, uh, how do you deal with the crowds? What's your view? And I know what I was hoping them to, uh, to answer. And mostly, particularly the best players, have said things like, I actually thoroughly enjoy, psychologically and as a footballer, when the crowd are against me, when I'm playing away from home, when there's people upset at what I'm doing, I revel in it. I know that I must be doing the right thing. This is what I want to be. And then at other times asking them how they deal with the huge crowds that you're talking about. And, uh, and, and having the, the response, it's much harder if there's 1,500 people there because I can actually hear what's been said and identify individuals in a huge group. It doesn't feel like that. So I'm not saying that players of a time who played in front of 80, 90, 110,000 that you know, they weren't aware of that. I'm not dismissing, dismissing that at all. But I think that maybe we imagine that that is more scary, threatening than it is for them when they're out there. Now, not all, but many of them. In terms of the formation, and that's why it sounded like it was sitting on the fence, I, I do think that they were formed, not everybody, but more people were formed psychologically in terms of character traits to be stronger, to deal with adversity better, to know who they are, to actually be quite sure who they are. All these are really hugely important if you're then going to deal with the sorts of pressure that they had to deal with. It's a fascinating subject. Plenty more to talk about. Um, just to mention, folks, um, at this point you are listening to or watching Sporting Lives uh, podcast with myself, Jonathan Deutsch, Dr. Mark Nesty, my current guest. I'd like to thank at this point uh, Independent Content Services, ICS of Leeds, that's Ian Holding and uh, Julian Barnes for their assistance in putting this together. Uh, please, if you enjoy what you're listening to, then do subscribe on the YouTube channel uh, or to the podcast. And also you can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Deutsch or uh, if you've got any suggestions for future guests who you'd like to see or hear on the podcast, then email me on jd at jonathandoidge.com. So, you're, doctor, you're a doctor of uh, academia um, in sports psychology. You are working with uh, active professionals. You've got a, a good track record. So you'd be well-placed to tell me what are the qualities needed to be a good sports psychologist. I think the most important one, particularly working in sensitive environments, and professional sport environments are very sensitive, particularly in a team scenario, is 
that the material that you are given, whether it's informal or formally, that, which is not great what I'm going to say now for this interview, but it remains confidential. And it's so much about building trust in a relationship with this athlete opposite you, because they are, particularly in today's world, um, so aware of how information can appear everywhere so quickly and half-truths can become something else and be really damaging. So the first thing is that the individual themselves truly understands that when you say this is going to be confidential, that the detail remains confidential. And by that, I mean, I've been very lucky and I've had fantastic coaches and managers for the most part working with me who have fully supported and understood the value in me being able to do sessions, one-to-one sessions, not group sessions necessarily, and that information, unless there's general themes across a number of athletes, is retained between me and the athlete in the report that I might give them. And that encourages the athlete then to really speak out and speak freely. Otherwise, without that, I don't think you would get what you should be getting. And I think you'd be wasting your money, quite frankly. I think another quality is that you need to have a reasonable background in psychology. You need to have studied this subject. You can't just walk in off the street. Some people do, because they're charismatic and they've had interesting lives, and they're quite funny. Uh, and that usually lasts for five or six weeks, and then it wears off. So it might sound strange in something, particularly football, that is quite simple. The game, that is. But what surrounds it is not simple at all. And what is required to actually perform week after week is incredibly complex in some ways. So if we can just lead that mm. into then common common issues. I mean, without, yeah, we know um, the, the confidentiality, as, as you've stressed, in terms of naming individual players or clubs that they're associated with. But what what would be a common football or concern or, or do these do the same sort of issues run through a variety of different sports cricket for example with your connection with Yorkshire what what concerns do players express to you I think if any coaches were listening to this let's hope there might be one or two but if it's across any of our team sports particularly at a good level but I think you would expect this answer at any level that you're hoping that what you're going to hear is the number one issue is deselection by that I mean, not being in the team for that week. Why is that called deselection and not being dropped anymore? I just want to because, know. That, that, because we always use fancy American terms to make things sound scientific. You must know that, Jonathan. Deselection. Yeah. It's tremendous. You just dropped. Well, yeah. you left out if yeah. you want to be nicer yeah. than dropped. Yeah. Is it yeah, the same? Yeah. You're in the mushroom squad. But um, that whole idea of having players who really want to perform want to be there because this is what they're about. That's crucial at that level, because people say, no, no, the real reason they're interested in not being in the team is down the line, if this continues, they get sold or moved on. So there's a financial, of course there is. But you've got the right people in the dressing room who, if you like, that is a secondary concern. Of course it's important, but secondary concern. Really what they're talking about in some sports, they would talk about that as just pride. That's the word they use, and that word can be used in all sorts of ways. But you want people who are deeply upset deeply upset by not being inside who believe that they should most certainly be on that list and that they then 
are going to try and do something about it and something constructive. And that's the key. So you want both these things. I mean, to me, psychology is about two things always that sound as if they don't go together, like a paradox. So I want you very upset and I want you able to channel that upset into working hard, into whatever that may be. So that's number one. And number two, in my experience, is two equal, depending on the sport culture, broader life issues. So everything from finance to family matters to relationships, it's like, and how does that affect performance? Well, that affects all of our performances. So why would that not be the same? So now you can see why trust and confidentiality would be key. And the other one probably equal to that would be misunderstandings. What a lovely way of putting it between coaches and players and players and coaches. And sometimes you can understand the misunderstanding and other times it's a bit more obscure. So those are the top three in my experience. Um, interesting. So you mentioned trust a lot and stress trust and it's obviously got to be absolute key to what you do. Have has there been have there been times when you've been compromised in that respect or somebody's tried to put you in a compromising position? Let's, for example, hypothetically say uh, a coach might want you to go and speak to a player to really find out what's in his head, but you've got to speak to that player, but kind of keep that in the, your little bubble with him. How do you how do you approach situations like that? Would you, if you were asked by a coach to go and do that, be prepared to, I don't know, break that that wall? It's a great question because even though the coaches will say these things that I've said about respecting confidentiality and understanding the process won't work without it, um, when they're facing the pressures they face, and what are those pressures? Those pressures, for some, could be that three points or the next victory or set of victories or good performances, if they're not delivered, you're gone. It's like, that's okay, you'll get another job. But it's not like that in professional sport. You may be gone, gone. And so what's at stake in their lives is um, incredibly unusual compared to most of our lives. Maybe high-level politics might be something similar. That sounds quite dramatic, but given the stakes and given the finance involved, that's the case. So... Apart from general themes, that's a type of feedback, but in specific terms, it's true. If you've got valuable information, and I've had at least half of the managers that I've worked with have said, I can't allow you to work this way. You will do other things because I need that information for selection. I need some of that because it's a team sport. So if you've got something that will affect that individual, I need to know about it so I can do something about it and ultimately maybe not play them. So in my opinion, a lot of sports psychologists have made this discipline so controversial unnecessarily by giving the impression they're involved in selection. I don't think, I can't think of, I can't think of any examples where you should be genuinely involved in the selection process. So to get to your very specific question, yes, I blew it twice. I did. Um, and you're not going to be able to give me examples. And, and I can't, you know I can't name names after what I've said, <laughs> but what I can say is in terms of what happened without leading it to any particular door is that 
in a difficult situation and staff are in a difficult situation, not just the coaching staff, but the support staff in general. And you know, if you have been working with someone or a number of players for a while, you know the individuals who certain types of experiences and moments, certain types of things that happen to them on and around the field, maybe away from the, the game, maybe elsewhere, you know from your experience of working with them and they've told you that these things affect them psychologically. And if you know that, the likelihood is that the staff know that. So on a couple of occasions, I moved slightly to the side by saying that I would speak to the athletes concerned and see if it was okay for them in this particular example to break confidentiality specifically so that the staff could help them and that obviously would have an impact on selection. Nobody mentioned selection. I have to say the two times that I did that, as I was doing it, I realised that I had put myself in a really difficult position. And so I withdrew from that and apologised to the players, the athletes concerned, and said, this is not my role. I shouldn't be doing this. This should come from other members of staff. And uh, I hope this isn't going to interfere with uh, our relationship. In one case, it did. In the other case, it didn't. But it's really difficult because you've seen people who, you know, you're working with day in, day out, and they're doing everything they can. The intention is, is positive. So, yeah, uh, psychologists can be human as well. Which is great that you've admitted that to us, um, I'm sure. And good that at least half of it worked out okay in the end, even if one half didn't. And that's understandable on, you know, on behalf of the, the other party or parties involved. But in saying that and in admitting that, I guess that also shows that you are reflective, you're self-critical. I guess you've got to be that way to do this job. How do you measure your effectiveness as a sports psychologist? Wow. I thought you were just going to stay with the reflective bit. Which well, is we'll tremendous. do. If you want to do that first, that go no, on. No, but that, that is essential because it's something, after all, that we're asking the rest of the staff and the players to be. Now, they're reflecting on psychological matters rather than technical, tactical, but sometimes they're involved as well. So we're asking them to develop their awareness, develop their understanding themselves to be reflective. So it would be incredibly ironic if the psychologist was not reflective, and many are not, because of a number of factors, and one of them is that academic training sometimes uh, does not lend itself to developing that self-critical perspective. You would have thought it would, but I think what it sometimes does is give people a type of arrogance, uh, that they are so certain of their theoretical knowledge and that they have the answers because they've studied and they know that they have and they're used to speaking possibly to students and other people who are in a particular position and give the academic the impression at least they're, they're the fount of all knowledge. So I don't think I... That's surprising, it might sound, but I don't think that psychologists are as reflective as the would like to put themselves forward. 
May that partially be driven by, I mean, we're talking about players being deselected, um, so they've got that pressure. If you are reflective as a sports psychologist and you are associated with a particular club, Fred Bloggs FC, and you go to the coach and say, listen, boss, um, I think I got that wrong with Fred Bloggs, the, the left back there. And he might say to you, well, if you can't get that right, son, we'll get another sports psychologist. And is that... Is that you know, affecting things. Absolutely, I, I don't. I don't think that um, affects the psychologists and sports psychologists, psychologists in, in general, um, across the board. If we've got specific examples, you're talking about. I think that that certainly could happen. I, I think that they say in professional sport, in relation to everyone, not just sports psychologists. You know, you've got uh, one chance. You may have three chances in Civvy Street in the public life. You've got one chance. Now, whether they literally mean that, but what they're kind of letting you know is that the stakes are very, very high, which is ironic, isn't it? And what a paradox that is that you're playing games. And yet we're speaking about it as though it's warfare. And that's an interesting parallel. So the measurement one, I think, is you mentioned that, is related to this as well. So there is naturally, particularly now, if you're working in um, the clubs that I've worked in, the environments I've worked in, team sport, where there's huge expertise around and they can measure everything. They're measuring people with GPS systems. They can see them go to the toilet. They're downloading that data to see exactly what they're doing in there, what the, physiolog the physiological uh, cost of that is. Everybody's measuring absolutely everything. Now, you can hear that I think it's excessive because what they do with that is another thing. But nevertheless, some of that is incredibly powerful. Now, psychologists, I think, have to bite the bullet and accept that they can't really measure that much, that what they're doing is inference, at most correlation. And my final word on this, my defence, and I don't know if it's too defensive, is, well, we're not that different to the coaches because the coaches can't exactly say what made Shankly, what made... Steen, what made Ramsey, look at the age, look at the age I'm showing here, what made those great managers, great managers, how would you measure that? And so this is art meets science. And I don't, I'm not embarrassed about that. I think that that's the discipline that I'm in. But it's true, you will get asked for measurement. And it's true, I work with psychologists who will promise that their figures mean something. And more often than not, some bright person will look through it and say, um, I think it's bullshit. Controversial stuff to end part one of Dr. Mark Nesty's Sporting Life. Loads more to come from him in part two, so do stick with me and please follow and you'll get the release of that. And you will also get the release of the forthcoming podcast with triple Cheltenham Gold Cup winning trainer Henrietta Knight, who will be next up. Also got one in the can as well with former Bradford Northern uh, and Yorkshire Centre and, of course, very successful coach as well during his time at the helm at a number of rugby league clubs, and that is Peter Rowe. He'll be with us in time for the start of the Super League season for 2021. Thanks once again for your company. As I say, please do hit uh, follow or subscribe. Uh, you can view these podcasts, if you prefer, on YouTube, on uh, Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. But whatever way, great to have you on board. I'll be back with you again shortly for part two.